Welcome to another episode of The Impolite Psychologist. So, in light of it being October, I thought I would do an episode that has to do with the paranormal, the unexplained, the stuff that is spooky in our world, and sort of where all that stuff crosses over into the world of psychology. Now, I have said this earlier, but growing up, it was very much a part of the culture that I grew up in to believe at least in ghosts. And I came from an area where there were a lot of old houses and a lot of people had stories. And sometimes more than one group of people would have stories about a particular place. Now, whether people were actually making it up or it was real, I don't know. I think as a kid, I was always fascinated by this stuff. But the older I get and the deeper I get into the world of psychology, my tendency is to kind of go more with the logical explanations of things. Now, that being said, I myself have had experiences that I have been unable to explain, noises and feelings and so forth. And, and there was a house that I lived in when I had finished college where when I was alone in the house, I always felt like I was being watched. And I had never felt that way in any other house that I had ever been in in my life. And so I cannot to this day explain what that was about. So I find this very interesting, especially now, because I do still have an interest in ghost stories. And I do watch those ghost shows on TV, the documentaries and so forth mainly now watching from the point of view of a psychologist and what I think about the people who are reporting. And I think part of the problem with these shows where people say that they've seen something is that they're never really credible witnesses. They always look, in the very least, a little bit eccentric. But sometimes they look flat out crazy. Or the way that the person is talking just seems like they're really embellishing. And so it is sort of interesting to watch these, these documentaries from that perspective now. But I do continue to have an interest in it. So it's kind of interesting because there was a time in my life where I wasn't a psychologist and now I am a psychologist, and how I viewed things then and how I viewed things now are different. I remember being in my doctoral program and being an intern at a clinic and having this conversation with my friend whose parents were from Vietnam. I think the subject of chupacabra came up, and she said that in the rural areas where her family is from in Vietnam, she believes that things happen more often in places like that, that the people who live there are much more in touch with nature, they are out in nature, they are more observant, they don't have the distractions of the city that the rest of us have, 
et cetera, et cetera, is that she actually believes that more supernatural type phenomena happens in places like that, which I thought was a very interesting take on things. So I think that there have been ways that this world, the world of psychology and the world of the supernatural or paranormal or the unexplained sort of cross over into one another. And there is a fantastic song that was created in 1983 by the band, The Police, called Synchronicity 2. I love this song because it does this thing where the lyrics run parallel between these two worlds, between the world of the psychological and the world of the supernatural. So on the one hand, the song describes sort of your average family and the things that the average family sort of goes through, but from a very dark perspective. And the, the song takes on issues like neurosis and misery, suicidal thoughts, feeling disconnected, having a lot of pressure in one's life, um, being somewhat out of it because things are just too painful, all of that. So it's sort of a dark way of looking at the dark side of our psyches. And what happens is in the chorus of this song, there is simultaneously a reference to the Loch Ness Monster. And in the first chorus, the lyrics go, many miles away, something crawls from the slime. And then the song goes on a little bit more. And then the second chorus says, many miles away, something crawls to the surface. And then the song goes on some more about the psychological aspects of darkness and then the final chorus goes into there's a shadow on the door of a cottage on the shore of a dark scottish lake and it's just so awesome the way that these lyrics just run parallel between the psychological darkness and sort of the paranormal or the unexplained darkness of the Loch Ness Monster. And I just love that these two things are running parallel to one another. So I think that this is what made old horror movies really, really good in comparison to today's horror movies. This has sort of happened as the result of technology. We have been able to create an amazing amount of special effects that back in the 80s, we did not have the technology to do. And so nowadays, the horror movies are sort of filled with some crazy special effects that, that make movies really, really good on the one hand, visually. But there's something that I have noticed about the newer movies in that today's horror movies rely a lot upon 
startle response. The, the camera will be showing a scene and then all of a sudden some horrible face will just like pop onto the screen out of nowhere or some horrible sound will just pop out out of nowhere. And it's a lot of, I didn't expect that, I'm startled now kind of response. Now back in earlier times, in the 1970s and 80s, we didn't have special effects. And so the directors had to rely a lot more on the storyline and the acting in order to make something terrifying. An example of this would be in 1980s The Shining, where the story is of a family who goes to a hotel that is closed for the season because the hotel gets snowed in and so they can't have guests during the winter, but the hotel needs a caretaker. And so this man who is a writer goes there with his family in order to watch over the hotel, but also to get some writing done. And the whole premise of the film is about the writer slowly losing his mind while he is in this hotel that is haunted. Now, the thing about it is that as a young person, and I was probably pretty darn young when I saw this movie, I can't speak to why I was watching a movie like this when I was a kid, but nonetheless, it was happening. And I remember being a kid and being confused about the premise of the story. I was not clear if the place was supposed to be haunted or if it was just supposed to be hallucinations in the mind of this writer. And the thing is, is that this movie is very, very slow playing. And it creates a feeling inside of you that something terrible is building. And it reminds me of something that an art professor said to me at one time. She said, art doesn't have to make you feel good. It just has to make you feel. And I think that that is exactly what the older movies were about. It was about an impending sense of doom, a sense that something was going to go terribly wrong, that something horrible was going to happen, and you were slowly feeling this way more and more and more as the movies went on. And that is something that we don't see nowadays because people now expect all the visual effects and for things to move very quickly. And I do think that we get the experience of fear and startle response, but it's not quite the same thing as feeling something build psychologically and with a sense of doom as it once did. So, and, and I think maybe it's also more of a body response, more of a quick heart racing versus a, a sense of something slowly happening. 
Now, one of my favorite movies as a kid was the Amityville Horror. And it is based on a true story. The true story part of the Amityville Horror is that there was a teenage or young adult son who killed his parents and his siblings in this house. That actually did happen. That's the truth behind the story of what happened in the house in real life. And the other part of that is that after that had happened, the house went on the market and nobody, of course, wanted to buy it because of what had happened. So it was offered well below market value. And this guy, George Lutz, who I believe was actually a contractor in real life, bought the house at a very low price. And him and his wife, and I believe they were her children, I don't remember if he had kids of his own or not, moved into this house. Now, a book was written about this family's experience, the Lutz family's experience, which eventually ended up turning into a movie. And the whole idea is like the house was haunted, terrible things happened in the house. And after something like 28 days of the family living there, they just left in the middle of the night when things just got too crazy in the house. Now, the Lutz family in real life went on, of course, to become famous and make lots of money off of their experience. And I think most of us thought of that as like, case closed, this is a terrible thing that happened, the house was cursed, it was haunted, and they got out because things got weird. But there's another movie that's a documentary that came out after that called My Amityville Horror. And it's a documentary about Daniel Lutz, who was George Lutz's stepson. And in the documentary, Daniel, now an adult, tells his experience of what it was like to be about nine or 10 years old and living in that house. And of course, he talks about strange things happening in the house and unexplainable stuff. And he believes that he got possessed at some point by a spirit and, uh, you know, believes that the house was a horrible place. He also talks about how difficult it was for him to be part of this story and to have to deal with being the kid from the ghost house. And I think that was very hard for him too. He also tells the story in this documentary about who George Lutz was, his stepfather. And this is what we know about George Lutz. George Lutz was an abusive man, I believe both emotionally and physically. He was into the occult. 
and Satanism and mind control and all kinds of weird stuff. And he was also a con man. And he also was running out of money. So from a psychological perspective and listening to Daniel Lutz's story, there's a lot of stuff that really can't be explained. And we just don't know the answer about this house. For example, there's a photograph that was taken and there's some kind of weird looking child with strange demonic eyes that nobody seems to be able to explain why that child was there because it wasn't any of the Lutz children and nobody was in the house at the time. So there's a lot of situations like this where nobody has any sort of explanation for what was there. However, given all of the psychological information about George Lutz, I think it is plausible that a lot of this stuff may have been staged by him to make things look like ghost activity, even to his own family, in order to profit either by getting out of a mortgage or by creating a book and a movie, there's a very good chance that he did that. Now, Daniel Lutz talks about this moment in time where he was sort of thrown up the stairs. And I'm not sure if he says his stepfather did it. I'd have to go back to the documentary and, and look again. But basically, he was thrown up the stairs by some force, and he sort of lost time for a moment and was sort of out of it and then woke up uh, on top of the landing or something. From a psychological perspective, I believe there's a very good chance that he was being abused and he actually dissociated meaning that his mind went blank for a period of time because our minds will do that to protect ourselves when our bodies cannot escape from a situation and they cannot fight back we will find another way to escape and that is usually by sort of leaving our bodies, so to speak. But really what it is is that our minds go sort of into autopilot or sort of into hibernation, if you will. And so this I know from working with people who have trauma in their lives, sometimes they can't remember certain events or details of events. Some people really can't even remember years of their lives. And usually it's because they were dissociating during these time periods. Although it's very troubling to the person that it is happening to, it is the way that our brains protect us from painful material. And so I would encourage you to take a look at my Amityville Horror because I think it's fantastic in terms of explaining a lot of potential psychological issues that could have created uh, the situation in that house. So we also, as psychologists, do experience, I would say, unexplainable 
things in the therapy room. I have said before that as a therapist, you will show up to work one day and you'll wear maybe, you know, of course, if we're all wearing sort of conventional clothing, you know, chances are other people are going to be wearing conventional clothing. If I'm wearing, you know, black slacks and a white shirt, the chances are I'm going to run into somebody else who's wearing the same thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if I go into my closet and go, okay, today I'm going to wear navy blue pants with navy shoes and a green and white striped short sleeves top. It's a little bit different when you go into work with that outfit on and your client has the exact same outfit on. The blue shoes, the blue pants, the green and white striped top, the short sleeves. They look exactly the same as you. There's something weird about that when that happens. There's some kind of strange connection between the therapist and the client that is somehow unconsciously available there. That is unexplainable. It's also unexplainable that as a psychologist or a therapist, whatever issue that you are personally dealing with that is a big challenge for you in your life, it will walk through the door. And I don't mean like, oh, I'm feeling mildly depressed and then my client comes in and they're mildly depressed. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, say, a therapist is they were raised on an island and they were one of four siblings raised by their uncle and their grandmother, right? Something very, very specific like that. And then a client will walk in and, and will be like, oh, you know, I was raised on an island. I was one of four children. I was raised by my uncle and my grandmother. You're like, what? And it's the truth. It's happened to me and it's happened to a lot of other people where the exact issue is being played out in front of us. And there's no explanation for that. And from my point of view, my personal view of that is I go, okay, God or the universe or somebody is trying to show me this lesson. And this is something that I need to learn. And so I take note of how I am handling it with the client and how it's making me feel and how the client is feeling and all of that. I'm trying to understand that as much as possible because I do believe that it was presented to me for a reason. And I have had clients in therapy have a feeling in their bodies when we are working, particularly when I am doing trauma work, I will have people feel something go through their bodies and they will say, I feel the hand of God and I feel like something just changed inside of me. Now, whether that's something they invent or need to feel or whether it really happened, I don't know, right? Another unexplainable, unusual situation. And I really don't have any explanation. I just sort of go with that. So, and that's happened more than once. 
So you just don't know, right? I think sometimes we just don't know what any of it means, that sometimes it's bigger than all of us. And it's unexplainable. And there is nobody besides talking with other therapists, there is nobody who can explain these kinds of things. I have even said things to clients and they look at me twice and say, you just sounded like my mother, or you just said the exact words that my father used to always say to me. And a lot of times clients who have belief systems around this stuff will think that that person who is probably deceased is sending a message through me. And I don't know what that is, right? It could be just a coincidence that I happen to sound a certain way or say things in a certain way, or I could be sort of channeling something. I'm not sure. You know, and of course, I always sort of default to the logical side. So I, I would sort of think it's a coincidence more than anything else, but you never know. So there's another thing that happens. I have myself worked with people who have multiple personality disorder, or as it's known today as dissociative identity disorder. But I have worked with it, but I, I don't, it's not like something that walks through the door very often because it's a pretty small percentage of the population who has it. However, those of us who work in trauma see it more often than other people who just kind of do regular talk therapy. So I have heard from other colleagues that when the personalities switch during the course of the session, the person will actually look different. There will be a different look in their eyes, right? And so that's kind of explainable, right? Because it's a different personality, so it's looking at the world in a different way. And a person might have a different look on their face when a different personality has taken over. I have had experience, however, with people changing in terms of the looks on their face when I first start therapy with them and when they have gotten to a different level of understanding about their lives. And it's especially when, it's, it's actually only when I do intensive trauma work that people will come in with sort of a look of asleep at the wheel, somewhat disconnected, um, just kind of not super present. And that when we have done a considerable amount of trauma work and a lot of healing has occurred, they have a different look in their eyes. They change. They seem more present, more connected. They look into my eyes. They look a way that they'd never looked before. And, and, I, and it's almost like the look of knowing. This is a look of consciousness. Now, what that is, I'm not sure. I don't know how a different level of consciousness can play out. 
and physical attributes, but yet somehow it does. It's really unexplainable. And so this is sort of just my take on where the world of psychology and the world of the unexplained sort of overlap. And I find it kind of interesting on some level and I love it. So I'm not sure what you're supposed to do with that other than be entertained by that. But I do wish you well and thank you for listening.